All right. Hello. This is a second in a series of podcast lectures on object relations theories, plural, not theory, singular. In this podcast lecture and the several, I think, that will come after it, I'm going to focus on one specific object relations thinker. So one thinker per podcast lecture. And I hope that this will result in several short-ish podcast lectures that will add to, enhance what your text has already informed you about, what it has already told you about each of these object relations thinkers. Keep in mind, uh, I said this in the podcast lecture that came right before this one. It's my opinion that the text kind of tried to cram in a little bit too much to one chapter. And so what I'm going to be trying to do in these podcast lectures is, you know, take each of the thinkers that they touch on in the chapter and expand on what the chapter had to say about each of them. So why even bother, though? Why, why bother taking the time to do a podcast lecture on each of these thinkers? Here's my thoughts on that. The thinkers that are just touched on in this chapter offer so much wonderful, rich, useful content. And I think that you, the students in this class, might actually want to use one of these thinkers as the kind of like theoretical base for the paper that you end up writing for this class and I don't know that you'd really be able to do that with what the chapter gives you on its own. So I want to add to what the chapter has given you just in case you do want to use one of these thinkers as the theoretical base for the writing that you do in the class. However, I am going to ask that you keep in mind that these podcast lectures are designed to be pretty short and very brief and very much a summary of a, just a ton of stuff that each of these thinkers produced during the course of their careers. And, you know, so it, if you find something here interesting, if you find it compelling, what you should really do is some of your own research. You should go sit down at your computer, you know, go to Google, type in the name of the thinker whose ideas you find interesting and compelling, and I'm sure you can take it from there, right? Go read more, learn more, and, uh, you know, follow your own interests. If there's a thinker that you find is really interesting. Not even not even just the thinkers in this podcast series of podcast lectures that I'm doing here, but any of the thinkers that we talk about in this class. If something that you read or heard about them seems really interesting to you, what I would hope you'll do is follow that interest, you know, and, and learn more about them. Okay, so that's my introduction. That's out of the way. Let's go ahead and transition into the first podcast lecture in the series of podcast lectures on object relations theories, which will focus on the work of Miss Melanie Klein.
Melanie Klein is this incredible thinker. She's this incredible person. Her biography is super, super fascinating. And if you're interested in her or her thinking, I would a good place you can start to learn more about her is this biography that was written by a woman named Julia Kristeva. And it's, it's just great. It's uh, so, so good. But anyways, Melanie Klein. She is grouped in with the British object relations thinkers. Your text breaks up the thinkers you know, into the British group and the American group. Melanie Klein is definitely in the British group. And some things that you should really, I think, know about her right at the start here is that she is the thinker who really establishes object relations theory as a significant body of thought within psychoanalysis. And her influence on object relations theory and on, I think, just all of psychoanalysis is massive. She influenced so many people. Uh, Donald Winnicott, who we'll talk about in a future lecture, was supervised by Melanie Klein. Um, John Bowlby, the guy who created attachment theory initially, right? He was supervised by Melanie Klein. She had an influence on both of them and their thinking. And, you know, the, the list just goes on and on. There's so many people who she influenced directly and so many, 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 many more people who she influenced indirectly. And because of the size and scope of her influence, it is my opinion, and there's people who would disagree with me on this, but it is my opinion that Melanie Klein could be and should be seen as really the mother of psychoanalysis. Okay, so having said that, I want to transition next into a little bit of a review, and I want to remind you about a few things that we covered in other podcast lectures previous to this one. And the reason I want to remind you of these things is because I think it's really important to kind of refresh our thoughts on these concepts because these concepts are really, really, really paramount, super important concepts within object relations theories because they are concepts that have so much to do with human relationships in general, which is what object relations theory tends to focus on the most. So the first concept is the concept of transference. And then after I talk about transference, I'm going to talk about a second concept, which isn't necessarily, um, it's going to be a bit of a review and a bit of a new idea, actually. It's, it's the concept of fantasy. Uh, you'll recall that in previous podcast lectures, I talked about how the relationships that we have with our parents or whoever our primary caretakers were, for better or for worse, those relationships formed the blueprint that we used to develop really any subsequent relationships that we have. One of the reasons why these relationships are so important in the blueprint that they create, why that is so important, is because it influences the transferences that we have in other significant relationships in our lives. Transference is where you transfer something, and something specific, from an earlier relationship, such as the relationship you had with your parents or your primary caretakers, into a current relationship. One of the things that I would say frequently gets transferred in is a power differential. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, you're a student in this class. Let's say you have a transference to me. If that's accurate, what that would mean is that you see me in a way which is similar to the way that you saw your parents. You know, your parents were people who you needed to ask for permission from if you wanted to do things. You needed to say, hey, mom, hey, dad, can I do whatever you wanted to do? And you thought that your parents actually had the power, you know, to tell you yes and no. 
And for a period in your life, that was accurate, right? Your parents actually could, in fact, stop you from doing some things, prevent you from doing things. Uh, like if you were, you didn't want to leave the house and it was time to go and they were like, it's time to go. And you were like, no, I'm busy doing whatever. They could literally pick you up and make you go. So for a while, they actually did have the authority. But as you've gotten older, I hope that one of the things that has happened is that the level of control and power and authority that your parents have in your lives has probably diminished, right? And now, I mean, you don't need to ask your parents for permission to do most of the things that you do, I hope. Uh, you just sort of do them. Now, there might be a few things that you might need to ask your parents for permission for. I don't know if you uh, need to borrow money from them. I'll say you might, you actually probably have to go and ask them for permission for that. But again, that, that should have diminished, right, over time. However, you, the, the echoes of that earlier form of the relationship where you needed your parents' permission in order to do a lot of the things that you wanted to do remains and it comes out in transference. So if you, for example, come to me in this example I'm giving you where you have a transference to me and you say to me, hey, I was thinking I wanted to write my paper and do it in this way. And you're asking for my permission. The, the reality is, chances are you probably don't really need my permission. You can write your paper the way that you want to write your paper. And, you know, that will be fine for, you know, go for it. Have fun, right? The way that you, you want to write and all that. Uh, but you think you need my permission to do things. And so you're, you're asking for it. That's transference. Transference comes into therapeutic relationships because patients or clients, if you want to call them that, oftentimes assume that the therapist is somebody who has more power and authority than they actually have. And, and so the, the patient will frequently be seeking the therapist's permission and authorization to do a whole bunch of different things. It is super important, of course, to be aware of this because it is extremely easy to abuse transference if we don't try to be very aware of it and very cautious around it. You know, so for example, a patient might be telling you about somebody who they've met and they're kind of interested in this person in a romantic way, but they're not sure. And they might be like, what do, what do you think? Do you think I should, do you think I should go for it? Do you think, do you think I should text him? Should, should I, should I do that? Uh, that's an example of transference. They're looking for you to authorize them. They're looking for you to give them permission to do a thing that they want to do. And, you know, you could, of course, grant that permission. I would say you probably don't want to do that. I think you should probably put it back on the patient and say, well, what do you think, you know, about that? Why, why do, what do you want to do? And, and be really more focused on what they want as opposed to authorizing something for them. Just get them to, if you can, you know, speak, say what it is that they want to do so that they can become more consciously aware of what their desires might be. That would be the way to handle it. So anyways, transference, super important thing. Wanted to remind you about that. And this brings me to the second concept, which, like I said, is a bit of a review and is also a bit of a new concept. It's the concept of fantasy. Now, when I say that word, I'm going to try to make you uh, aware of something that will influence how I use the word throughout the rest of this podcast lecture. Melanie Klein spelled the word fantasy two different ways. Sometimes she spelled it with an F, the way that we spell it today, and other times she spelled it with a PH typically not the way we spell it today. And that's because these two things signified different things. So fantasy with an F, what's that? Fantasy with an F is a conscious fantasy. So you might fantasize about a vacation that you want to take or about a meal that you want to eat or um, about uh, the 
paper that you're going to write for this class. You're, you're actively imagining it is what's going on here. You haven't actually taken the vacation or, you know, prepared the meal or, or ordered it from wherever you want to order it from. It, it exists as an idea in your head, as a fantasy with an F. That's that kind of fantasy. PH fantasy is another term that was used by Melanie Klein. And that kind of fantasy, fantasy with the PH, is an unconscious fantasy. So it's a, a fantasy that we have, but we don't know that we're having it, which sounds kind of weird, right? So let me suss it out for you just a little bit here. PH fantasies are fantasies that we have about the way that the world works. So an example of a PH fantasy is what I was just referring to a moment ago in the transference. We might have a PH fantasy that, uh, say say we're, we're a patient going to a therapist, we might have a PH fantasy that this therapist is super smart and that they know the thing that if they just tell it to us and we do what they say, that our lives will be awesome. That's a fantasy. It's not real, but it's something that we believe, but we aren't necessarily aware that that is what we believe. Other examples of PH fantasies might be the way that we fundamentally see the world. Do we think that the world is a generally safe place or do we think it's a generally dangerous place? Those would both be examples of PH fantasies. Uh, PH fantasies actually could also be seen, I think, as extremely influential in the attachment styles that people develop. The attachment styles that people develop, whether they're you know secure, uh, if they're insecure or disorganized, those have to do with the PH fantasies that people have. So somebody who has like a preoccupied attachment, they might have a PH fantasy that, you know, people are always going to leave them and they're never coming back. If they, if they, you know, lose sight of this person, they're gone forever, right? That would be an example of a PH fantasy. Somebody with an avoidant attachment might believe that if they show weakness or some other kind of emotion, which isn't, you know, the kind of emotion that you typically will display, that people will think that they're weak and awful and will want to have nothing to do with them. That is an example also of a PH fantasy. So there we go. Transference, right? It's when something gets transferred from a previous relationship, usually a power dynamic, into a current relationship. And that is something that happens at the level of the unconscious. It is a PH style fantasy, a fantasy that we have about the way that the world works, the way that we fit into the world. Uh, but we don't know that we have it. We can't, it just kind of happens automagically on autopilot in our heads. We aren't aware that we're doing it versus F fantasy, which is, you know, fantasizing about imagining something that we would like to do. Uh, now what we're going to do is a bit of transition music. Then we're going to jump into some concepts that were originally thought and written about and taught by Miss Melanie Clark. So the first thing that I want to make you aware of about Melanie Klein is how innovative she was. At the time that she was practicing, psychoanalysis was, you know, very kind of rigid, actually. Freud was near the end of his life. Um, and what people in the psychoanalytic world tended to do at this time is they tried to sort of copy, replicate, imitate what Freud 
thought psychoanalysis should be. And there was a lot of people who thought like you, you can't deviate from the very classical Freudian style of psychoanalysis. Now, the very classical style of psychoanalysis that Freud practiced was not a style of psychotherapy that could be used with kids because it was a type of psychotherapy that focused very much on adults talking to each other. You know, in psychoanalysis, one adult, the patient, would come to the office of another adult, the analyst or the therapist, and they would talk. And then the analyst or therapist would listen to what their patient said, and they would analyze the speech that the adult produced. Now, kids are, you know, oftentimes they don't talk. The younger they are, the less likely they are to be extremely proficient with language. But kids also have problems. And although it was less common at the time that Melanie Klein was practicing for people to bring their children to a psychotherapist than it is today, it did occasionally happen. Somebody might bring their kid to somebody and they'd say like, hey, can you help me understand what's going on with my kid? Most psychoanalysts at this time would say, no, I don't work with children. I don't work with children. I can't work with children because children don't talk and you have to talk in order to do psychoanalysis. Melanie Klein thought, you know what? Kids might not talk in the same way that adults do, but they do talk. They do communicate. They do have emotions and thoughts and they do communicate those emotions and thoughts. They just don't do it in the same way that adults do. So in her work with kids, Melanie Klein noticed that their play and that the toys that they played with carried really important symbolic meaning for the kid. And she discovered that by paying attention to the way that kids played and paying attention to what they played with, that that could be analyzed in pretty much the same way that um, analysts who only work with adults, the way that they analyze speech and dreams and, and other things that adults talked about, Klein thought you could you could just take that same mental process of analysis and apply it to play. So unlike the psychoanalytically informed approach to the education and socialization of children that was practiced by a bunch of other mental health professionals at the time, Klein offered her children patients something that was a lot closer to the kind of psychoanalytic experience that adults got. She saw them as people, kids. She saw kids as people who you could analyze by really just letting them play, watching what they did, and, you know, commenting on it, talking with them about what they were doing. So if a kid, you know, would come into her office, there'd be a lot of different toys, and she'd say, you can, you can play with whatever you'd like. And the kid would pick a toy, and she might say, why'd you pick that one? And maybe the kid would answer, and maybe the kid wouldn't. Either way, that was interesting to her. If the kid did answer and say something, okay, great. Now she knows something. If the kid didn't answer, that was communicating that the kid didn't feel comfortable with her yet. You know, and she could then use that going forward. So what was so cool about this, I think, is that Klein was able to see that, you know, people can communicate in a lot of different ways. And even if you're working with a patient that isn't super good at verbal communication, you can still use psychoanalysis with them. Today, this has implications for tons of different groups, kids, obviously, but also, you know, maybe people who uh, don't know English super well, they're learning English, right? You, you could still take some Kleinian ideas and maybe use it with them. Or people who are on the autism spectrum and who tend to be less verbal than, you know, other people who are not on the autism spectrum. You could take 
client and ideas and possibly use it with them as well. And again, I really can't stress this enough. Klein was one of the first people to figure this out. She was one of the first people to actually do this. And it was a big deal because, you know, at the time, you know, doctors were supposed to be serious people. And so it, people didn't think of doc, if a, somebody brought their kid to a doctor and the doctor like played with their kid, they'd be like, what are you doing? You're supposed to like be a serious person. Why are you playing? But Klein resisted that judgment that people would put on things. And she said, no. I'm not just playing with your kid. That is what I'm doing, yes. But the play is super important because it's the way that I will understand your kid. And by understanding them, possibly be able to help them and you with whatever difficulties you might be having. And one of the things that makes Klein's work with children and adults so interesting to me is the way that it focused on two extremely common emotions that people struggle with. Those emotions are anxiety and depression or sadness. In both instances, Klein's work grew out of one of the insights that Freud had, and that was the insight that there are certain desires that people have that they repress. And again, remember, a desire that is repressed is a desire that we have, but we do not know that we have it because it has been put into the unconscious where we do not have access to it. But even though it's in the unconscious, it continues to exert an influence over what we do. So an example quick of a repressed desire. You might have a repressed desire to um, get out of a relationship that you're in. But you know, consciously, you're not thinking that. Consciously, you're thinking like, no, this is a good relationship. I'm, I'm happy in this relationship. Everything's good. But unconsciously, there's a desire to get out of it for whatever reason. Uh, that unconscious desire might be expressed by you picking fights with this person over like really small, insignificant things that they do. Klein, in her work with kids and adults, she had this idea that anxiety is something that we feel probably when a repressed desire is starting to come up, right? And she noticed that one of the really common repressed desires that people, both kids and adults, had is a desire to be aggressive, uh, to be mean, to be nasty, to be petty, those sorts of things. And she found that when we were in instances where that desire might be kind of getting closer to the surface, we tended to have an experience of anxiety. Another way I could explain this is to say that Klein was able to see in the play of children and in the speech that her adults uh, adult patients produced, the the way that they talk about their dreams, uh, their free associations, the slips of the tongue that they engaged in, et cetera, a desire to be aggressive. And she recognized that this was a very powerful desire uh, and that it was so repressed, so unconscious in people. No one wanted to, uh, well, they did want to be aggressive, but at the same time, they recognized that there were consequences for being aggressive and they really didn't want to face the consequences for being aggressive, even though they did want to be aggressive, right? That's the situation that so many people were in. And in addition to that, you know, people started to get anxious when they felt like they might lose control or they might lose their temper and that like their aggression might kind of escape the prison of repression and kind of get out into the world. What is significant about this idea is that while we can be anxious about external things or scared about something that, you know, 
is actually existing in the world. Like if you're scared of spiders and you see a spider and that makes you scared, that's the kind of anxiety that can be produced and really understood really easily. We can go, I'm anxious because of that thing over, I'm anxious because of the spider. I'm anxious because the weather is really bad and I have to drive somewhere. We, we can explain that anxiety. But there was also anxiety that people were experiencing that they didn't really understand. And this happens a lot in clinical situations. Somebody might come to you and they might say, I'm anxious. And you might ask them, well, what makes you anxious? And they'd say, they might say, that's the thing. I can't figure that out. I'm not exactly sure why I'm anxious, but I know that I'm anxious a lot. Klein would theorize that perhaps one of the reasons why somebody had kind of a general free-floating kind of anxiety is that there was this repressed and unexpressed aggression that they hadn't been able to kind of allow themselves to feel, acknowledge, and experience. So Klein's preoccupation with the anxiety that comes with having a whole bunch of repressed, unexpressed, unacknowledged aggression gets brought into this concept, which is called the paranoid schizoid position. And this concept suggests that people have a tendency to see themselves and others as broken up into different parts, good parts of ourselves and other people and bad parts of ourselves and other people. And they these things are very, very separated when somebody exists in a paranoid schizoid state. Now, I think it's easier to kind of look at this from the position of ourselves, right? So uh, imagine that you are in the paranoid schizoid position for a moment here. And what th this would mean is that there is a good part of you and that is the part of you that you want to put out into the world. That is the part of you that you want to interact with uh, other people through and all that, right? That's the good part of yourself. The part of you that does what you're supposed to do, that says what you're supposed to say, so on and so forth. That part of you is seen as good. And any part of you which feels jealous or or um, upset or angry or irritated or any other form of uh, aggressive kinds of emotions, that part of you is seen as bad. And the idea is that uh, you need to keep these things very separated. The bad part of yourself should be either eliminated or if it can't be eliminated, it should be kept far away from all of your interactions with other people. So Klein's theory suggests that when people start to feel the air quotes bad part of themselves or the aggressive part of themselves becoming more active coming to the surface, they get scared and they get anxious. So what are they, they afraid of? Well, they're scared that they might do what they secretly desire, what they unconsciously desire, what their id or their inner child or what Winnicott, who we'll talk about later, what their true self actually wants to do. So to kind of give you a, a quick example of this, say that you work someplace and your boss is making some demands of you that are, you know, just a little unreasonable, not crazy unreasonable, but just a little unreasonable enough to really kind of irritate you. Uh, if you're having a bad day when your boss makes those demands, that means that you are more likely to potentially say something or do something 
that will, you know, kind of get you in trouble. And that means that when you start seeing your boss, who's made these unreasonable, slightly unreasonable demands of you, you start to feel not only angry, but anxious. And the, the anxiousness is the idea that you might actually say something or do something that might lead to you, you know, losing your job or whatever. You become paranoid that you might allow your bad self out, that your aggressive impulses might be something that you lose control of. Or to put it very succinctly, people are scared that they might lose control of themselves, that they might have to see, acknowledge, and experience the part of themselves that is aggressive and destructive. So when people who are in the paranoid schizoid position are are going through these sorts of things, what's happening is that they are really scared that they're going to act aggressively. And what that that fear does is that fear tra- turns into anxiety. And the, the problem with this is that when we're anxious, we have to manage our anxiety. And so the anxiety, it's weird. I don't know if this will make sense outside of my brain, but I hope that it will. The ang- Managing the anxiety becomes sort of this distraction that we're like, okay, I can't be anxious. I can't, I got to keep myself under control. I got to watch what I say. I can't say the wrong thing. I can't do the wrong thing. We're really focusing on that. And because we're so focused on that, we actually end up saying or doing the wrong thing. It's like the more anxiety that we have to manage, the more fear that we have to manage, the more likely we are to say or do something that we are actually afraid of saying and doing. It's weird. It's paradoxical in a sense, right? So people who are in the paranoid schizoid position, they're people who are deeply afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing. And because they have to manage that fear, they actually end up saying or doing the wrong thing rather regularly, which is sort of tragic in a way, isn't it? One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that originally it wasn't called the paranoid schizoid position. Originally, Klein just called it the paranoid position. But then later on, she changed it to the paranoid schizoid position after she had encountered and read the work of another theorist who I'm going to be talking about in the next podcast lecture, Ronald Fairburn. Uh, Because Ronald Fairburn described schizoid personalities, and when Klein read that, she thought it really matched up very nicely with her paranoid position. So she just kind of combined the two into the paranoid schizoid position. Another thing that Fairburn talked about in his work, which Klein ended up kind of taking into her own work, is this concept called splitting. And splitting is a defense mechanism. It's a psychological defense mechanism where people kind of create a pH fantasy that I described earlier. And in this pH fantasy, they believe that one object is totally 100% all good. And in order to allow for that object to be seen as all good, they have to make another object or another person totally bad. I think we see this a lot today in American politics, right? Both of the political parties want to see, the Republicans and the Democrats want to see themselves, I think is like all good. And one of the way, the effects of that is they turn the other party into the party, which is totally all bad. And this is an example of, of splitting. In order for me to be uh, all good and for the things that I do to be all good, they kind of have to be opposed to somebody or something, which is all bad. I'll give you another quick example of splitting here. One time in my own clinical work, I was working with a family. Uh, actually, the, the patient, the identified patient was a teenage kid. And this teenage kid's parents were going through or had recently gone through a kind of messy divorce. And one day this kid had done something at school that got him in trouble. And I remember I went out to the waiting room to get the kid for a session and his mom happened to also be there. And she asked if she could talk to me. I said, sure. 
she came back to my office and she told me that uh, her kid had got caught uh, doing something. I'm going to make this up. Got caught cheating on a test. It's not actually what he did, but let's just say for this example, that's what he did. And she, she told me, hey, my kid is a good kid. He's a really great kid. And normally he wouldn't do these things. But the reason he's doing these things is because of his father, you know, my ex. That's the reason. He, his father puts all this pressure on him to be perfect and da-da-da-da-da. And, and so what this mother was doing is trying to make her kid, her son, into an all-good object. And in order to do that, there, to justify the bad behavior that he had engaged in, there needed to be a bad object. And that bad object was, in this case, the ex-husband, her former um, you know, romantic partner, and the other parent of the kid. That's how that played out. So this is another thing. Again, Fairburn is one of the people who really kind of originates this idea of splitting, but then Klein really kind of encounters his work and then brings it into her own work to describe it, this concept, this uh, defense of splitting as something which is really common in people who happen to be within the paranoid schizoid position. And this probably isn't super clear. I don't think I made this part super clear. So let me, let me back up for one second here. When somebody does this, when somebody splits like this, what ends up happening is the all bad object ends up being a thing that they can be aggressive towards, but that aggression is a very justified aggression. It's not a socially unacceptable aggression. It's a socially acceptable aggression because it's okay to be aggressive towards somebody who is all bad. Uh, another example, I think the, another way we see this anyways in contemporary society is when people become, uh, I'm using my air quotes again here, canceled, right? If somebody has done something that is all bad, that means that for some people anyways, it means that it's totally okay to treat them as though they are subhuman. And that means that all of the aggression that that person has kind of repressed in their unconscious now has this place that it can go to. It can flow towards this bad object. And it does that because there's a fantasy that a pH fantasy in place here that this all bad object is deserving of the aggression. And in addition to that, it allows people to continue to see themselves and other people as all good objects. So if I'm being really, really nasty to somebody who has been canceled, um, I could see myself as an all good object. I'm justified. I'm righteous. I should be doing this. They deserve this, right? That lets me see myself and my actions as good because my uh, aggression is being directed towards a person who, you know, because of whatever they did or said or something is seen as deserving of that aggression. So I really do hope that that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, I hope you'll tell me when we meet as a class. brings me to the last concept that I'm going to talk about in this podcast lecture, which is the concept of the other position that Melanie Klein theorized, the depressive position. Keep in mind at the beginning uh, of this lecture, I talked about how Klein was interested in both anxiety or paranoia and depression or sadness. Just finished talking about the anxiety component. Here's the depressive side. And the best way I can think to talk about this is by giving you an example. And the example is, imagine somebody who is an addict. 
An addict might exist in the paranoid schizoid position if they think there is a way that they can kind of contain the more problematic parts of themselves, the, the addicted parts of themselves, if they think they can control that in a variety of ways. And most addicts kind of start off this way, right? They, they think, I will be able to control my addiction if I do ABC thing or if I implement XYZ plan. They, they have those things. Those would be pH fantasies, according to Klein, right? The, the fantasy that they can control uh, a part of themselves, they just need to figure out how to do it. And if they haven't been able to control their addiction, it isn't because they have an addiction problem. It's just because they haven't, in their pH fantasy, discovered the right, the appropriate way to manage or contain that addiction. And so what they're doing is they're they're constantly attempting to kind of keep their addiction as an all good object keep their you know their drinking if they they drink alcohol as an all good object and they do that by turning other things into all bad objects so maybe their romantic partner who wants them to stop drinking is an overly controlling emotionally manipulative gaslighting person who's trying to convince them that they have a problem that they don't have right that would be an example of somebody operating in the paranoid schizoid position with addiction However, sometimes people who are addicts, they have an experience, and who knows what it is for any addict, but they have an experience that makes them realize something. And what they realize is that they actually do have a problem. They have a serious problem. There's this thing, and they're addicted to it, and they can't have a reasonable relationship with it. It's always going to be an unreasonable, problematic, and destructive relationship with whatever it is that they're addicted to, whether that's gambling or alcohol, or some other kind of substance. They can't, they can't manage it, right? They can't manage their addiction. It's not possible for them to do that. They can't see their use as an all-good object It's because it's not all good. Yes, it does provide certain things for them that are good. It gives them maybe a nice feeling. Maybe it provides them with an interesting experience. Maybe uh, if they use, like, I don't know, hallucinogens or something, maybe it's a really interesting experience. Or maybe it provides them with a social group if they go to a bar all the time and that's where their their friends are and whatnot. Yes, it does provide those, but it also provides these awful experiences, you know, really negative physical kinds of things that happen to their body as a result of their addiction. Maybe it has a really negative impact on their finances, their career, their families, and other important relationships, et cetera, right? Um, a, somebody who's existing in the paranoid schizoid position wants to be able to maintain the addiction in the way that they allow themselves to do it is by seeing other things as all bad. Uh, so maybe maybe it's just hard, hard alcohol, whiskey, and stuff that's all bad. If I only drink beer, it'll be okay. That could be an example of how somebody might exist in the paranoid schizoid position. If they're able to move into the depressive position, what they're able to do, the addict in that position is able to, to see, like I said earlier, that they, they have this relationship with the substance or this behavior and that they can't manage it. It doesn't. They're sometimes somebody. Some people can gamble for fun, and they can manage that. It's not a problem for them. Some people can drink alcohol here and there. Uh, they can control their alcohol consumption relatively easily. It's not a problem for them. And there are other people who just can't do that. They can't. If they have alcohol, they're going to lose control. If they start gambling, they're going to lose control. If they, I don't know, start doing something else, they're going to lose control. That and they recognize that that's the way that they are. That's kind of a bummer. It's kind of sad. It's kind of depressing to recognize that about oneself. However, if somebody does 
recognize that about themselves. What they're doing is they're not dividing things up into good and bad anymore. They're taking the good and the bad and they're putting them together in the same thing in themselves. They, they recognize that they are probably somebody who has some good qualities. They want to be a good person, et cetera, but they're having a hard time with that. They're, they're not necessarily as good as they want to be. And part of the reason that they're not as good as they want to be is because they can't control this thing about them. They, they start to see that their self, their addiction does have these bad qualities. And because it has these bad qualities, they have to change the way that they relate to it ultimately, right? So that's that's my example of the depressive position. And, and I want to highlight something here. It's called the depressive position because to be in the depressive position is sad. It's it's a bummer. It's, a, it's not easy. It's not fun to recognize that something that we like, whatever it is, is something that also has a negative effect on ourselves and our lives. That's sad, but it's the way that it is. A lot of times the things that we enjoy the most, whatever they are, they're things that if we're not careful, they can have a really negative effect on our lives. We have to, we can't enjoy them to the extent that we want to enjoy them. We can't enjoy them as often as we want to enjoy them without suffering consequences. To actually acknowledge this, to actually understand this, to actually experience that is a sad thing. It isn't easy. It kind of sucks. But if we're able to do that, if we're able to move from the paranoid schizoid position, the fantasy of things being all good or all bad, the fantasy of being totally in control uh, or totally out of control, and we're able to see that things are always, 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 always a combination of good and bad elements that we are a combination of good and bad elements, that other people are a combination of good and bad elements, that other political parties are combinations of good and bad elements, the people who we idealize are a combination of good and bad elements, that people that we don't like, people that we've canceled, that they are a combination of good and bad elements, to really, really, really see the world that way. That isn't easy, and it will make you sad because it means that life is more complex than we are often prepared for it to be. It means that people are more complex than we are often prepared for them to be. But it's also a more realistic way of experiencing ourselves and the world. And for that reason, Melanie Klein believed that the depressive position was actually the superior position, that one of the things that psychoanalysis and psychotherapy might be able to do, one of the ways that it might be able to help people is by helping to move them from the paranoid schizoid position where they're very scared that they're going to say or do the wrong thing, where they have these pH fantasies where th that things are all good or all bad and move them towards a depressive position, which isn't going to be fun or easy for them. But if you move them towards it, they'll be able to start to see that things aren't simple, that they're, they're complicated, that they're messy and that that's okay. It's okay for things to be complicated. It's okay for things to be messy. Not easy, but it can be okay. That is the depressive position. Okay. Uh, that might be clear. That might not be clear. I hope it's kind of clear. And if it isn't clear, I hope that you will have questions and that you'll bring those questions when we meet as a class. Till then, take care of yourselves. Make glorious mistakes. Don't let the man keep you down. So on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. I will see you soon.